Welcome, listeners. I am Leia Ajayi. I'm a consultant urological surgeon from the Royal Royal Free Hospital in London, England. On behalf of the Endourology Society and Journal of Endourology, I welcome you to this open channel podcast sponsored by Cook Medical. Participating today is Dr. Thomas Tilly, consultant urological surgeon at University Hospital in Ghent, Belgium. I also have with me uh, Dr. Professor uh, professor Roger Sue, who's a professor of urology at University of California, uh, San Diego, USA. Uh, welcome, gentlemen. Today, we're really discussing changes and trends in PCNL. And I'm very interested uh, to hear both your opinions, really. First of all, I just want to start off in how you do your PCNLs. Do you put your patients uh, in a supine position or prone position? Um, Thomas, what are your thoughts on this? Supine or prone? What are your views on these this uh, positioning for your patients? So currently prone, but I, uh, currently supine. I'm sorry, currently supine. But I was trained in prone. So when I started off as a uh, consultant here, I did all my PCNLs prone. But I uh, shifted uh, my practice to almost 100% supine right now. Okay, interesting. And Roger, uh, in America. There's been a slightly uh, slower uptake of supine PCNL, and uh, I just wondered your thoughts on on what your preference is, what's your go-to position for doing uh, PCNL. Similar to Thomas, I was trained in prone. That's traditionally how we've done PCNLs in North America. But over the past several years, I've kind of self-taught myself the supine technique, and I feel there are some benefits to that. So it's split 50-50 for me. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Uh, in Europe, my colleagues in Europe, we've taken on and embraced supine PCNLs and also uh, colleagues in other parts of the world. Um, the uptake in, in from our colleagues across the pond in America has been slightly slowed. I wonder what, do you have any thoughts on why uh, this is? I think it's a combination of two things. One is historically, we were taught to do it prone there was no teaching of supine. So the absence of teaching leads to practice patterns. So now that some of us in North America are doing, or more of us are doing supine, uh, a lot of our trainees are starting to adopt this. And I think you're going to see a a larger adoption of supine in North America over time here, since the teaching institutions are now teaching it. Indeed, I'm sure of this, certainly. And, now, I think, and maybe one other comment is, there are some um, theoretical disadvantages uh, that people talk about with the supine, and that's also led to some hesitation um, historically, um, specifically yeah. the difficulty accessing upper pole, um, perhaps a horseshoe mm-hmm. kidney or a duplicated system if you wanna get into the upper moiety. These are some of the, the rationale um, that have led to a hesitation and a pause in adopting supine. Yes, I think, you know, those are all theoretical um, um, indications or lack of indications for supine PCNL, but I think things will change. Now, I just want to move on to an area of miniaturization of PCNL. Um, I just want a gentleman, really, whether the 30 French sheath is uh, something of the past. Uh, Thomas, uh, what's your go-to track for your standard PCNL? How, how, why do you dilate your track? So currently, my go-to track would be a 15-16 track or 16.5, 17.5 right. track, both from the mini set that I have in my hospital. 
I do not have a 30 French tract anymore. I don't have a balloon that dilates up to 30. I don't have an Alcon set that does that anymore. My largest tract that I have in my hospital um, is a 21-22 French tract with the one-step dilator or a 24 French tract with the balloon. That's interesting. That, that's interesting. You feel the 30, the 30 French uh, sheath is perhaps a dying thing. Um, Roger, what's your uh, impression? Uh, do you still dilate sometimes to 30 French? Yeah, uh, we'll routinely dilate to 30 French or 24 French, um, depending on the scope that you have in our hospital. And uh, the reason for that is we feel like there's a efficiency that's gained with a larger uh, sheath. Uh, we do do the mini PCNL, but we reserve that for stones smaller. Um, it's an arbitrary cutoff of two centimeters. Um, that's where we'll do the mini PCNL. Right. Uh, Thomas, you were saying that your standard dirty is what you said at 16 or 18 French. Is there a size cutoff? As Roger was saying, you know, two centimeters stone. If you had a, a staghorn calculi, for example, what would be yeah, your. I fully agree with uh, Roger there. For larger stones, I, I don't routinely use the 16 or 17 French tract. Then I would go to for a 21-22 French tract, mainly because it can take out larger fragments. Uh, but the, the main reason is that I can use uh, uh, my lithotripter, which is a shock pulse with a suction. And I can break up the stone really fast and, and suck out the fragments, which is somewhat more efficient with the larger tract. Okay, that's interesting. And out of interest, gentlemen, I wonder whether you could tell me what um, what device you use to dilate your track. Do you use the coaxial amplex dilators or do you use a balloon? Uh, Thomas, first, please. So I usually use a one-step dilator, uh, which is part of my MIP set. Okay. If I can get in with my uh, one-step dilator, I'll use a balloon, which is the 18 okay. French or the 24 French uh, cook balloon that I have in my hospital. Thank you. And Roger, your thoughts, please. Yeah, um, we use, and I'm just going to be specific here because I think it's helpful for the audience, the, the Carl Stortz um, mini PCNL, uh, the 16 French obturator, and then this uh, the one-step dilator, and then the 17 French sheath for the vacuum uh, removal of stone fragments. I have not used the larger, uh, there's three sizes that Thomas has alluded to. 22 French is the largest. I use the middle of the road, 17 French, and there's a smaller 16 French sheath. I actually have a question for Thomas. Um, anecdotally, do you find using the 22, you ever use the vacuum technique with the 22? I, we've had trouble with that. Yes, I have. Um, so I think uh, what, what's very important for the vacuum effect is the the size is your size of your scope in your in your tract and for the 22 french tract i have an 18 french slender scope from stores which works quite nicely uh, to to vacuum out fragments um, i usually do my patients in supine so that may help there for the vacuum effect because i don't have to hoover it out all the way up uh, against gravity there there is some help there uh, but it does work and for uh, hoovering out fragments, I think that the 12 French scope works best with that 17 French tract. I also have the smaller tract, the 15, 16, uh, but hoovering out does not work that well with that tract. So yeah. to recap for the 22, you're using the uh, French. larger um, nephroscope. Yeah. But you said you also use the shock pulse. Why do you use the shock pulse with the 22 if, you, if it works with the vacuum technique? 
goes faster. If yeah. you if you if you have to vacuum out the fragments, you have to break it up first and then vacuum them out. Yeah. And I think with the shock balls, it goes a lot faster. It's interesting. We talk about the superimposition and some of its advantages and disadvantages. Uh, you can miniaturize your track, and because of the anatomical position of your sheath, perhaps you get that vacuum effect a bit better, uh, rather than working against gravity uh, in the prone position. Uh, so that that's interesting. So I get the impression for both of you, you've miniaturized your track. Is there any benefit really to the 30 French at the moment? And what you do now, do you think it's of more benefit than the 30 French um, sheath? I mean, it's a fair question, um, but um, I I think for for Thomas and I, we're doing you know a large fraction. We're tertiary and quaternary sites, right? Where the volume of PCNLs is going to be much higher than, let's say, someone in the community who's doing twenty PCNLs in a given yeah. year. So, is it fair to kind of generalize what we do to what they do? Um, yeah. I think that's really kind of some of the issue here is that if you're not doing a high volume of this procedure, is it really fair to take the data that we do and say, well, you should be doing this, you know? Yeah, it's a fair point. This is a very fair point. My guess would be, and if I was in practice and only doing 10 or 20 in a given year, I might want to do what's ever easiest and quickest and in my mind safest, perhaps. That's that's a very valid point you make there, Roger. Um, just out of interest, do you find that with the, with the mini uh, miniaturization, your visualization is compromised in any way, Roger? In general, no. I, I feel like the visualization is excellent, actually. And there's some little tricks you can do to improve that. But overall, it's it's um, it's good. It's adequate. And uh, and yourself, Thomas, what do you think about visualization? And you just get your thoughts on visualization. And if you're miniaturizing, uh, the whole issue of intrarenal pressure, intrarenal temperature, uh, what are your thoughts on that? Because you don't quite have the same level of drainage as you perhaps would. Um, first of all, I think the vision, uh, the visualization is, is more than adequate, just like Roger says. I've never had any issues with visualization using my miniaturized equipment at all. Um, Regarding temperature and pressure, it's a very good question. It's probably true that if you have a larger tractor, pressure is, is lower, but it also depends on how high you have your irrigation bags. I just use gravity irrigation and my bags are usually at about 80 centimeters, which is not that high. And even with that pressure, it's, it's, um, my visualization is, is great, really. Um, so regarding pressure, I'm not really that bothered or that scared of, of uh, getting sepsis after a mini PCNL. I think um, it's, less, it's less of a problem doing mini PCNL. Roger, I don't know whether, you know, when we're doing ureteroscopy, it's slightly different, but do you ever have to consider intrarenal pressure whilst you're doing a mini PCNL maybe? I think there's a lot of concerns about intrarenal pressure, but the jury's still out. The data is unclear. And at this point, until we have more data to really suggest that one technique is a higher pressure or even that the higher pressures lead to problems and what specific pressures lead to problems. Um, I agree with Thomas. I'm not sure clinically at the end of the day, this really makes a difference temperature wise. I don't, again, I don't have data, but I don't think there's a huge difference in temperature for PCNL, maybe for ureteroscopy if you're using TFL and slow irrigation rates, et cetera. But um, again, all this stuff makes for nice, uh, arguments, but I'm not sure if it translates clinically to something significant that affects our patients. 
valid. Thank you very much. Now, I just want to go back to Thomas. I'm interested in your track size, you know, 17 French track size. Um, I just wonder, is there, and I've asked this question already, is there an upper limit to the stone size where you'll switch from your MIP set 17 French to a slightly bigger track? Do you have a cutoff in the size of the stone? I think it's quite similar to Roger's cutoff of about two centimeters, but it also depends on the density of the stone. If it's a if it's a very soft stone like a struvite stone or a gasset stone, uh, I may actually go for a larger track because then I can use my shock balls and 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 suck out the fragments. It it goes a lot faster because if you then use your laser, you're just going to disperse a lot of fragments and you have to go chase those fragments. And sucking out the fragments with the shock balls or any other device like that is, is very efficient at that point. And then I would go for a larger track, even if it's a smaller stone. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Roger, you mentioned uh, the TFO laser. I wonder whether I can get your thoughts on what energy devices you, you use for PCNL. Just take us through your armamentarium, armamentarium uh, for doing PCNLs in terms of energy device, please. Yeah, so for, uh, for a larger... Uh, dilation like a 34 or 24 we're using the trilogy device we find that very efficient uh, for breaking up the stones or removing them for the mini pcnl we're using a homium laser typically a 365 or even a 550 uh, micron fiber uh, i've had some experience with the tfl but most of my comments with the tfl are based off the literature which you know as we know looking at the last aua there's multiple studies showing potential benefits of tfl over homium specifically efficiency the ability to remove the stones quicker um, with smaller fragments and so it translates to a couple minutes sometimes but if you're doing multiple cases those 10, 15 minutes of save time can lead to an extra hour, maybe the opportunity to do another case. Indeed, indeed. And Thomas, um, just to get your thoughts on what energy device uh, you use when doing PCNL. So similar to Roger, I use a, a dual lithotriptor. Um, I don't have a trilogy, I have a shock pulse, but it works uh, quite similarly. I also use a homium YAG laser. My go-to fiber is usually a 270 micron fiber because I quite often do an ECIRS where I combine a flexible ureteroscopy to my PCNL. And in that way, I can just switch out the fiber from my PCNL track to my flexible ureteroscope and go chase a fragment that I can't reach with my nephroscope. If, I'm, if I don't think I'm going to need that uh, flexible ureteroscopy lithotripsy, I may use a larger fiber like a 550 micron for sure. Okay. Yeah, fully and agree. You mentioned you use shock pulse. Uh, do you have a choice whether you use the ballistic ultrasonic or do you always use the combination? This is a question for both of you. you even with Trilogy or with shock pulse, do you find you prefer more the ballistic aspect or more the ultrasonic aspect of the dual device? Well, I think with shock pulse, you can't really choose if can't you choose. have either. So, so it goes both ways. Uh, both at the same time, um, I used to have a lithoclast master where I didn't really enjoy using both at the same time. So the pneumatic and, and the ultrasound did not go well together, separately perfect, but together not that well because they couldn't suck out fragments that easily. Indeed. So I Indeed. used one or the other, at, uh, but not okay. simultaneous. Roger, with Trilogy, uh, do you use the combination effect or do you tend to 
if I want yeah. to. Yeah, you can select um, ultrasound or uh, combination. Uh, and I typically will start with just ultrasound. Um, and I will only use the combination if the stone is really dense and I feel like uh, I'm, I'm failing to progress in the case. So, but ultrasound is the go-to. And if the heart, the stone is very dense, then I'll uh, add the uh, pneumatic component to it. Yeah, I must say I'm the same. I prefer the ultrasound. It's quieter in the theater than the noise of the pneumatic. So There's I mean, a noise component to it. Uh, <laughs> admittedly, and that's some of the reason, actually. Indeed. And, and Thomas, you mentioned you use your laser, uh, you use a high-powered laser. Uh, any thoughts of the kind of settings you would use uh, for high-powered laser doing a, a mini PCNL? Do you also, question for both of you when you're doing laser, do you fragment or do you dust when doing uh, PCNL, mini PCNL? So if I'm doing a mini PCNL, quite often together with the flexibility reteroscopy. I use a 270 micron laser fiber, and that is limited to 30 French. Even though I have a high power laser, I can't put, let's say 60 watts through that, or, or yeah, through that uh, laser fiber. If I'm not using my flexible reteroscope, I will go to, uh, to higher uh, energy, whichever is necessary to break the stone. If I'm doing a PCNL, I'm, I'm not a duster. I, I fragment the stone and I take out the fragments because then a patient's stone-free and stone-free is stone-free. And I, I like that better. That's great. Roger, are you a duster or a buster? <laughs> I guess I'm a buster. Um, <laughs> never heard that term. Uh, so I, I agree that for PCNL is different than ureteroscopy. And ureteroscopy, I think you have options of fragmenting versus dusting. But with PCNL, uh, the fragmentation, this is all just anecdotal, appears to be more efficient. And again, I keep using this term because at the end of the day, it's all about getting the patient off the table. And particularly with a mini PCNL, if you make uh, three to four millimeter size fragments with the 17 French sheath, you can efficiently get these fragments out. Uh, there's a point of diminishing returns. If you make it really small, yeah, you can get them out, but you probably could have gotten them out perhaps earlier at the three millimeter mark instead of trying to dust them and all you're doing is spending more time potentially on the table, increasing the risk uh, to the patient for an adverse event. So I believe in a fragmentation for PCNL. And I, I have colleagues like Dr. Mongo, he'll fragment um, and then use a Perkins circle to uh, extract the pieces out. And here he's kind of minimizing, I think it's all about efficiency, getting the patient off the table, do what it takes. Um, don't spend excess amount of time and expose the patient to increased risk of bleeding or sepsis. Yes, I mean, you mentioned the perk end circle there. I'm interested to get both your thoughts on your um, devices that you use to extract stone. We talked about the, the venturial vacuum effect uh, when doing a mini PCNL, but when you have fragments in the kidney, uh, Roger, what's, what tools do you use to extract uh, the stone fragments? Yeah, I think there should be like a Nobel Prize for whoever invented the Perkins Circle. It's a game changer. There's no yes. question about it. that device. It is uh, amazing for the PCNL surgery. Um, you, know, you not only can extract pieces, but you could use it to dilate up a calyx. When I can't see things in a calyx, I kind of poke my Perkins Circle in there, open it up, and voila, I can suddenly see if there's a stone in a tight infundibulum. Uh, it's such a safe device, unlike the devices that come with 
the nephroscopes, those rigid graspers. I always call them the instrument of the devil. And I tell them, I don't <laughs> like my residents using them, but I don't mind them using the Perkins circle because it's so safe and effective. It is incredibly safe. Uh, Thomas, your thoughts, uh, intra-renal uh, stone manipulation, uh, what devices uh, do you use? I fully agree that Perkins circle is a great device. The only downside is that it doesn't really fit through my 12 French scope. Uh, that is a significant downside. <laughs> yeah, it is a downside. It is. But what you can, what you can actually do is dismember it and just use the inside and then close the basket to your scope. It's right. Like, oh, interesting. That's possible. really interesting. It's right. not ideal, but it works. <laughs> so you take off the sheath and then just use the basket itself. Exactly. Oh. Right. I'm interested to get your thoughts on you know, another topical area is the issue of tubeless PCNL. Uh, you hear probably you see publications where uh, they mention tubeless PCNL, but there, there is some form of drainage. Um, I wonder whether you either you perform a true tubeless PCNL or whether you're comfortable with performing a true tubeless PCNL, or do you do some kind of drainage? Uh, do you see any advantages in tubeless PCNLs? Over to you, Roger. Get your thoughts first, please. I mean, I think if you can perform a true tubeless, that is to say, no stent or nephrostomy tube, this is an advantage to the patient. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't want to put a stent in myself or anyone that I know that I like, but I have to oftentimes. And in my practice, uh, a tubeless PCNL does require a stent, so it's not truly tubeless, but I'm aware of groups like this, the group in Tennessee and other groups that are uh, truly do tubeless PCNL. I know Mantu Gupta, I believe uh, in New York does tubeless PCNL, and um, there's an advantage to the patient. If I had to choose myself, do I want a stent or no stent? It's like, yeah, sure, no stent. But my concern, uh, at least in my practice, is um, that the pain associated with not placing some type of drainage. Yeah. So I haven't been able to get to that point, but I know it's being done. So this is an area of clinical research that's okay. important. Interesting. Tom, Thomas, can I get a, a stare from you? Do you, do you undertake tubeless, true tubeless BCNL? So I've done a few, but I, I really cherry pick those patients who have no history of urinary tract infection, a very wide ureter that has been pre-stented, for instance, um, and a perfect puncture, no bleeding, a young patient, uh, smart enough to, to come back wow. to the hospital cool. if necessary, uh, and, and well, uh, uh, so does not live home alone. What? Correct. You're very, you're very selective on who you- Very selective. I, I think I've done like five or something. So yeah. it's very, very limited. But just like say. Roger, most of my patients get a stent. No nephrostomy tubes anymore. Yeah. Because I do feel that they have less pain postoperatively without a nephrostomy tube in their backs. And then they and go home. They can go home the same day, which is also, I cherry pick those, but mostly they go home the next morning. Right. And uh, you, you're, able your, you're able to get your patients back uh, promptly to have their stents removed? no problems in access, we turn back. That's a good point. Uh, so with COVID actually, we did have some issues there. So I, uh, I switched to, uh, for, for certain indications, if the stent can stay for a short period of time, I put a lot more stents on a string right now, which I did not used to do at all. So right now I, I have more patients with stents on strings. I take it out at home after let's say a day or five. And otherwise currently I'm not having any issues getting my people, uh, my patients back. 
But Belgium is a very small country, so they can get to Mars pretty easily. And what about California? Would you be comfortable doing, would your patients be able to self-remove stents? Do you ever do leave stents on strings? Um, the only time I'll leave a stent on a string or tethered is that if I really feel, I'm not sure if I really even want to leave a stent because, and the rationale for that is, if that stent gets inadvertently removed um, by the tether, by the patient prematurely, then I'm not as concerned. But if I really want that stent there for a week, then I do not leave a dangler because I feel, although that's a convenience to the patient, it's outweighed by the risk of it being inadvertently pulled out. And then now we got a real problem. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, Thomas, you were talking about the specific indications of tubeless PCNLs and the risk of sepsis, sepsis, et cetera. One area we haven't talked about is really antibiotic prophylaxis. Uh, could you just tell our audience what uh, your hospital protocol is for patients coming in for complex kidney stone surgery in terms of antibiotic uh, prophylaxis? So in my practice, if a patient comes in for a PCNL and does not have a history of urinary tract infection, et cetera, a low risk patient, it's just one shot of antibiotics just prior to the procedure, but I do keep them on antibiotics for that day. It's just 24 okay. hours. What, what antibiotic is is uh, of choice in your hospital? Um, we're going through transition right now uh, due to some resistance patterns. Um, currently, cefazolin, um, if I'm not mistaken, is currently advised by our colleagues. Uh, quinolones are currently still or again advised because it was... Uh, not advised in 2018, or at least the European Medical Association suggested not to use quinolones anymore for prophylaxis. But just a few weeks ago, my microbiologist said, well, maybe you should go back to quinolones as a prophylactic for that's PCNLs. That's interesting. Roger, can I get your stay on that? Uh, what do you do at your unit for antibiotics? I think to some degree, it doesn't even matter what I do, right? Because like Thomas alluded to, it's your local antibiotogram what's going on in your institution is probably more important. I will say in our institution, we have a high percentage of enterococcus. And because uh, enterococcus is resistant to fluoroquinolones, my go-to is ampicillin. And then for, for gram positive and for enterococcus and to cover the gram negative, they get a five mg per kg dose of uh, gentamicin. Um, and if they have renal dysfunction, then they'll get ceftriaxone. But the point being, I think we all need to understand what is the resistance patterns in our local hospital and tailor the antibiotics to that. I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. It's interesting in the UK, there's quite a high resistance to ampicillin. So our antibiotic prophylaxis is no aminoglycosides, gentamicin, five milligram. Uh, Roger, your group recently published on this sort of area. Could you just give us a couple of lines, a summary of- Sure. I belong to the uh, EDGE Consortium, which is a group of uh, institutions in North America. And we collaborated on two large randomized controlled trials. The first one asked the question, in a, in a low risk group of antibiotic uh, PCNL patients defined as someone who has a negative pre-op urine culture, how long of antibiotics preoperatively do you need to give? A week or just the day of, like Thomas does at the time of surgery? And we, in this trial, we found that there was no increased risk of sepsis 
if you gave just at the, on the day of surgery. You didn't need to give a whole week of antibiotics in people with a negative pre-op. In patients, we then uh, did a second trial looking at how about high-risk patients defined as someone who has a positive pre-op urine culture or people who have stents or nephrostomy tubes. What about these people? Can you just get away from, can you just give uh, two days of antibiotics? So we did a trial comparing two days versus seven days pre-op. And we found that if you only gave two days of um, pre-op antibiotics, you increase the risks of sepsis by threefold. So we concluded that in high-risk patients, there is a benefit to giving one week of pre-op antibiotics versus 48 hours. This, this is an excellent study, and thank you very much for summarizing this. Uh, Thomas, any thoughts on this? Would you do anything differently, or do, do you agree with uh, Roger's group? I read the paper and I, I do the same thing. Thank you for, for, for getting that out there, Roger, because it's very important data. Yeah, uh, so yeah, I, I give a prolonged prophylaxis, so to speak, for these patients as well. Um, okay. I, I usually give them about five days prior okay. to the procedure. That's helpful to hear. Thank you very much. Um, length of stay has always been an issue. In the UK, it's one of the matrix where uh, our governing body kind of judges our performance for PCNLs. Um, your, Thomas, let me ask you this question first. Your length of stay, on average, uh, preoperatively, how long do you tell patients they're going to be with you for when they come for PCNL? Do you, and also, do you ever send anyone at home the next day or the same day? So for a healthy patient without any history of urinary tract infections and so on, I say one night in a hospital. Get the surgery day zero, go home the next day get a bladder catheter for one night, it gets taken out the next morning, they go home if the, if the blood work is good and then there's no fever, they go home. If it's a patient that is at a higher risk of bleeding or infection, I tell them it may be two days or, or longer, but quite often they go home the next day as well. If their blood work's fine, there's, a, there's no hematuria, then they can go home the next day as well. Okay. Once again, like Roger, um, uh, alluded to uh, high-risk patients for infection. Um, what I do in those patients, though, I give them a prolonged dose of antibiotics after the procedure as well, uh, just yeah. to, to cover myself. That's helpful. I'm not sure if it's necessary. We'll see. I think there's some data that it's not necessary for, for weeks or months on end, but like a week is, okay. or five days is, is quite useful. That's helpful. Thank you very much, Thomas. Uh, Roger, length of stay. Any thoughts, yeah, uh, we've uh, published on this. Um, my former fellow and now a colleague at the UC San Diego, Seth Beaches, uh, wrote a paper in the Journal of Endourology and just described our outpatient PCNL practice, which began in 2015. And now this is now a standard practice. If you get a PCNL institution, we tell the patients preoperatively, you will be going home that day. Uh, there are some caveats to that. Um, but in general, all the patients go home about one or two hours after surgery. They wake up and we don't routinely get labs. Um, we find the labs are, if you need labs, you probably know you need the labs because there's some clinical indicators by just looking at the patient or having watched the case, you know you need labs. But otherwise, we don't routinely draw labs. They end up just being unnecessary and the patient goes home, uh, irregardless of the stone size. The caveats being, if it's at the end of the day, uh, we do, we'll keep the patient overnight and I'd like to send people home at nighttime. If you leave far away from home and you have to travel several hours in the car, that's probably not a good idea. 
And if there are social reasons, so a patient is cognitively impaired, has uh, home health care on a regular basis, probably saying those patients home that same day is not ideal. But otherwise, um, or and lastly, obviously, if you have a reason in your mind, it concerns clinically, by all means, keep the patient overnight and observe. Um, this is something that works for us in San Diego. We recognize not every healthcare system um, can adopt this. It depends on the country. There are different, you know, it, there's, it's a very complex, but at least in North America, we believe that this is a practice that should be considered a serious benefit to all stakeholders, healthcare system, physician, patients, um, et cetera. That's really good to hear, Roger. I just want to understand a little more about this practice because uh, as far as I'm concerned, when I do a PCNL and my colleagues ask me, how did it go? I said, I can't comment until the patient's gone home and that can take a day or two because the risk of sepsis, not necessarily evidence in the first 24 hours that that can rear its head down the line or bleeding. Um, in uh, America, is there a tariff, uh, link, financial tariff or benefits or incentive linked to a best practice tariff for sending patients to the same home the same day by any chance in this sort of situation? There's a lot of my benefit to the providers like myself. There probably is a financial benefit to the healthcare system of which I don't see directly per se, um, but the genesis, so it's a, it's a fair question, right? Are we being incentivized for this? And the answer is no at least in North America or in the United States, we're not. Um, so the benefit, the genesis of this really was for the patients when we first started doing this, um, but it's a fair question. I mean, it, it's something I'd be very keen to try and do is get patients quicker. Uh, in London, uh, being a metropolis, uh, they do have access to hospital straight away, but I'm still slightly anxious uh, of sending anybody home within 24 hours of PCNL. So... Uh, can I make one comment about that? I think that if you or someone is interested in uh, adopting the out the true outpatient practice, um, I think you know what would be nice is you start with a small stone, right? A yeah. two centimeter stone, the case that goes for like an hour, two hours. It's bloodless. Um, everything is is just beautiful. It's early in the day. Patient doesn't live far away. You tell the patient, my first set of patients is tell them, hey, I want to see you back tomorrow. Yes. <laughs> my patient got sent home. My fellow, sent, my, wow. my fellow, Dr. Abbott, sent the patient home without telling me. And I was like, you sent him home? Like, yeah, they went home. Like, I was like, oh, my God, you sent the patient home. Yeah. So I was freaking out, brought the patient home back the next day. I got a CBC. I'm checking, are you okay? Are you check, checking the belly? And after a couple of those, I realized this is unnecessary. But you start slow and you, you start with cases that you feel comfortable with. Keep them, keep a close leash on them, so that you know you feel that you're not committing some type of malpractice here. Roger, this is very good words of wisdom. Thank you very much for that, because it is an area that, uh, like I said, we're judged upon in the UK your length of stay, and uh, we're kind of long in the tooth. We're used to doing things in a certain way, and hearing uh, words and, and from yourself, someone a high volume surgeon uh, in this area being comfortable sending patients home uh, the day, same day or the day after is, is uh, food for thought. So thank you very May much. May I make one last comment here? Yes, please. Um, you know, 
I want to make the comment that apparently I learned that this is a common practice throughout North America that I'm not, although we published on it, there are many sites that are doing this. Uh, when we looked at these large administrative data sets we recognize in Florida and New York, there are thousands of patients that are going home on a regular basis. We just were unaware of it till we started looking at the data. So I think it's a relatively common practice and increasingly becoming more and more common, just like gallbladder surgery used to be an yes. overnight stay. Now it's a you know, outpatient procedure for laparoscopic stuff. Correct. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, gentlemen. Just one final area I want to talk about is around the issue of uh, radiation at the time of PCNL. Uh, when you're doing your PCNL, Thomas, do you use ultrasound for your track access or do you use a fluoroscopy or a combination? So for my puncture, I use ultrasound. That's almost purely ultrasound, uh, 90% of the good. time. Um, but for my track dilation, I quite often just give a, a few shots of fluoroscopy, yeah. especially yeah. if I'm training a resident or a fellow. Uh, I they, they quite often go offline. Uh, they don't go in line with the, with, the, with the guide wire, which is sometimes difficult to understand. Just it's a guide wire, let it guide you, just follow the wire. But sometimes it really helps to give a shot of fluoroscopy to show them how away from the target they're moving with their, uh, with their uh, dilator. Uh, but otherwise not too much fluoroscopy, especially if I have a flexible radioscope in there and I'm looking at the, the entry site, and then you can just advance your uh, uh, dilator until you see it come into the kidney. And then you did a zero fluoroscopy procedure. That's Can I ask you a question, Thomas, since you're such a high volume mini PCNL surgeon, do you ever experience a bending of the wire when you're advancing the one-step dialect? Is that an issue for you? And how do you get around that? How do you avoid bending the wire? That's a very good point. Very good question. Uh, so I, I don't have it anymore. Uh, I used to have it from time to time. My resident or fellow still sometimes have it. Uh, but what I do is I gradually advance the, the dilator. I push it in like half a centimeter and twist it one side, then push it in another half centimeter, twist it the other side, and so on and so on. And I let it go in between. I just let it rest on my thumbs or my fingers so that it really follows the guide wire. I don't push uh -huh. it in. I just let it follow the guide wire half a centimeter by a by push. That's and then good. rotate it left, right, left, right, so that it okay. on the fibers of the, of the capsule. That's great. Good point of technique. Uh, Roger, your thoughts, ultrasound, fluoroscopy, or combination? Oh, uh, yeah, again, this is an area that uh, we're actually behind you guys uh, in North America to the rest of the world, just like supine uh, PCNL ultrasound, we're lagging. So a, a couple of us over the past couple of years started adopting us uh, ultrasound technique, and now it is a go-to technique uh, for myself. I know Dr. Chi and many others are now using um, ultrasound on a regular basis. Um, and we're hoping to really diffuse this technology and catch up to the rest of you guys with the use of ultrasound, but it's a combination. Uh, I know Dr. Chi at UC Sandy, uh, UCSF is pure ultrasound. He doesn't even wear lead anymore. Um, I'm not as bold. I um, And for me, I guess the issue is, and maybe I need to be a better teacher here, I'm worried about transferring this technique and technology to my trainees. Um, and I'm, I'm just not convinced that I can get my trainees to take off the lead and use only ultrasound in their practice. So for that reason, 
Mine is a combination of ultrasound, get the needle in, and then use radiation or fluoroscopy to finish the case. But clearly, there is the ability to do that. And uh, UC, UCSF, they can do that. And so I think they're pushing the limits and showing us what is possible and something to consider. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, we're coming towards the end here. Can I get some final words from you, uh, uh, Thomas, uh, on whole on our podcast today? Any uh, comments you'd like to uh, get across to our, our audience today? Well, it's a, it's a podcast on changing trends, and I think it's uh, um, it's been demonstrated today that there's a lot of trends that have changed uh, along the years. I mean, we went from thirty French to many from prone to supine from keeping the patients in the hospital for, for a few days to sending them home the same day. I'm going to try that more now, Roger. Thanks for, uh, yeah. for some advice there. Um, and uh, some people really push the limit and that teaches us and shows us that we, we may need to do that a little more as well. And we shouldn't be afraid of transition, but embrace it rather. That, that's fantastic, Thomas. Thank you for those words. Uh, Roger, any final comments from you? Well, I think I want to, uh, first of all, just thank our predecessors, all our teachers who have led the way and taught us how to do PCNL. And now, like Thomas and you, Leigh, are alluding to, we're innovating and iterating on what they did. And hopefully people will continue to realize that there's always room for improvement. So the younger generation, our trainings will make us look old and antiquated. I want to say one broadly, um, I think it's interesting. Fast forward 10 to 20 years from now, I, right now there's a war going on between PCNL and uteroscopy, and I'm not sure who's going to win. I think the jury is out. You know, is PCNL going to be antiquated or will ureteroscopy be antiquated? There's a lot of variables out there. So it's interesting to see the innovations, but 10 years from now, we'll see who the winner is, or maybe both will exist, but in different, uh, different uh, indications. Fantastic. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for your time. Uh, we've come to the end of this podcast. And, and on behalf of the Journal of Endourology, and Endurology Society. I'd like to thank uh, Dr. Thomas Tallier, a consultant urologist from the University Hospital of Ghent, Belgium, and Professor Roger Sewell, Professor of Urology, University of California, San Diego, uh, USA, for participating in this highly educational podcast. I thank you both for your time today, and uh, thank you. Thank you.